0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Marijuana is the largest industry in the tiny western Colorado town of Debec. Marijuana sales taxes fund about half the town's budget. So Debec's leaders got nervous when the attorney general last week rescinded a policy that allowed marijuana to thrive in states that legalized it. Town manager Lance Stewart says the community of about 500 people would essentially become a ward of the state without marijuana sales. And Stuart joins us by phone from Debec. Welcome to the program.
1: Uh, good morning, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the program again.
0: Is it really this serious, Lance, that Quebec uh, would crumble without the marijuana trade?
1: I would have to say yes, um, especially in light of the decreased revenues that the town has received the last few years from the oil and gas royalties business.
0: So oil and gas has been depressed in that area, and that has hit Debeck as well.
1: Yes, it certainly has. Um, back in 2006, the town collected approximately $260,000 in uh, uh, those types of taxes from um, severance tax and mineral lease. And uh, this past year, it was about 14000
0: Wow, 260000 to $14,000. Uh, your town east of Grand Junction, along I-70, has three marijuana dispensaries, and a marijuana cultivation business. Uh, One of those pot shops opened just last week, I think. A fourth is set to open later this month. Uh, Are there no other businesses in your town?
1: Um, We do have a um, major convenience store out on the interchange uh, of I-70 that uh, provides a lot of services and some food products uh, for folks here in the community. And then we have a uh, local coffee shop that is uh, frequented by folks here. And that, uh, in addition to the marijuana stores, is uh, the core of our um, retail trade here.
0: All right. You've described the economic activity of Debeck in many ways. Uh, But uh, it being such a small town, I have to wonder who the customer base is. This is a politically conservative town. Um, why is it so attractive to marijuana businesses?
1: Well, it was one of the first communities on the West Slope to legalize uh, the sale of marijuana and, um, and the cultivation of the product. And so that attracted uh, quite a few of the big players to begin with. Um, but you're correct that the town is a relatively conservative community. And if you remember from a previous conversation we had that the legalization vote only passed by about four votes at the time, Hmm. and so there was some uh, concern at the last election cycle that that maybe could have been reversed, but luckily there was no um, uh, effort mounted for any kind of a ballot initiative, which I think speaks well that the community has learned to accept uh, having marijuana in the community, and I think part of that also comes from the fact that we have honestly not had any adverse effects uh, from a law enforcement perspective in our community, just because the stores are located here.
0: So who are the customers you draw? Are they from all over the Grand Valley?
1: Um, I would say it's twofold. We were drawing the majority of the customers out of the Grand Valley prior to uh, the opening of a new store in Palisade. And we have seen a drop in our tax revenues uh, since November when that store opened. Uh But we do receive a lot of traffic, uh, especially uh, westbound traffic, off of the interstate at one of our uh, dispensaries on the highway.
0: All right. Back to Jeff Sessions' announcement last week that he was rescinding an Obama directive that basically offered some protection for the legalized marijuana trade. I'm guessing that touched off some maneuvering in Debeck. Uh What are you doing to protect your marijuana tax base? since so many eggs are in one basket for your community?
1: Well, at this point, um, I'll say we haven't lost any sleep over Mr. Sessions' uh, action. However, I have put together an alternative uh, budget for 2018 uh, based on the possibility that if we lost approximately half of our uh, revenues that we depend on for our general fund revenue, uh, it would definitely um, cut into the personnel that we have and the capital expenditures that we had planned for, I'll say, streets and drainage improvements this year.
0: Okay, so you are at least looking at the possibility of that. Uh, of course, Sessions' announcement is more likely to affect recreational marijuana than medical marijuana, which is protected uh, uh in another way. So is it possible that you could convert those shops from recreational to medical?
1: Uh, yes, it certainly is. And I'm glad you brought that up because in anticipation uh, that something might happen um, in the future, uh, now that it you know, looks like it, it's uh, a possibility anyway, uh, the town did uh, adopt an ordinance uh, last summer uh, which would allow recreational cultivation and dispensaries to convert to medical marijuana if they chose to do so.
0: And you did this in anticipation of potential changes at the federal level?
1: That is correct.
0: Okay. So that would allow for a transition back to uh, medical pause. So what what has marijuana paid for in Quebec?
1: Well, um directly through our excise tax, uh, we have uh, rebuilt our uh, truck route through town uh, that was falling totally apart, and we had some assistance with the severance uh, tax grant through Energy uh, Impact uh, with DOLA at the state level to do that. Uh, we replaced uh, an additional couple blocks of Uh, sidewalk, curb, and gutter this past year around the new school uh, that was recently built. And that school was built in part with uh, state grant monies that came from the state-level revenues that have been received. Uh, We also have a full complement of um, marshals deputies. We have uh, a department of four people, which includes a school resource officer. And then we have my position as manager here. If we did not have those funds, uh, we would definitely have to cut back the hours uh, that my position uh, would be applicable here, and I'm guessing we would have to cut back two of our officers.
0: Was it wise for DeBeck to go all in on marijuana, given that there's so much uncertainty between the state and the federal law here?
1: Well, I think that the... Um, that it was a good move on behalf of the Board of Trustees um, when they did that, and it was somewhat out of desperation. Uh, The town had attempted to uh, legalize gambling as a way of bringing a resource to the community in a sustainable revenue stream, and that was not successful for a number of reasons. And so then they looked at um, legalizing marijuana when that became a possibility, and even though it was a very contentious issue here in the community, um, it prevailed. And now we're starting to see the benefits of that uh, decision. And hopefully um, it, it'll continue into the future.
0: So in short, Lance, it sounds like you didn't see other options.
1: Uh, we did not see other options. Um, mm-hmm. I work uh, constantly with the Grand Junction Economic Partnership um, to you know, locate uh, business prospects that uh, could possibly uh, locate here in Quebec. Uh, uh, but every time we get close and think we're maybe going to be successful, then there is um, some other community that is uh, in a position that they can provide incentives which Quebec cannot. And we end up um, no longer in the running. But it. We're, we're not giving up on that.
0: I see. So it's not as if the only trajectory you'll pursue is marijuana. Thanks so much. That's Lance Stewart. He's town administrator of DeBeck, a small historic ranch and mining community in western Colorado, which turned to marijuana in recent years for a new economic base. For other Colorado communities, alarms aren't necessarily going off like they are in DeBeck, at least yet. That's according to the Colorado Municipal League. Its deputy director is Kevin Balmer.
2: Right now, especially based on the comments of uh, the U.S. Attorney for Colorado, uh, at least uh, the Municipal League's reaction
3: is, is it's not going to change all that much.
0: He is talking about the top federal prosecutor here who appears to be staying the course when it comes to marijuana enforcement. But Bomber says there'd be a lot at stake if there were a federal crackdown.
2: Instead of focusing on tax revenue, you're also talking about the um, the overall economic impact, the number of jobs that that's created.
0: Bomber thinks reactions from Colorado's leaders, like Senator Cory Gardner, who tore into the Justice Department, should provide some assurance to cities and towns that the recreational marijuana industry isn't going anywhere anytime
1: soon. A lot of the reaction, presuming that it was going to be shut everything down, is, is probably not the case and probably unnecessary.
0: Is Kevin Bommer, deputy director of the Colorado Municipal League. Customs offices are usually located in large airports with a lot of international passengers and foreign trade. So why would Grand Junction, a city with no international flights, push for a customs office? Here's a hint. It has to do with mountain bike parts and giant fish tanks. Robin Brown, the new executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And welcome back to the program. Thank you. So why does Grand Junction need a customs office? Is this a step to something bigger?
4: So it is. We need a customs office because we want to establish a foreign trade zone, and the only way to do that is it, a foreign trade zone has to be connected to a port of entry. Okay. So while flights to Cabo would be nice, that's not the driving force behind the customs <laughs>
0: office. Uh what is being a foreign trade zone get you in Grand Junction?
4: So it actually it it's it's a benefit for manufacturers, so companies that import raw materials and then manufacture it into a final product and then sell that product. Um, oftentimes the taxes or the duties on the raw materials that come in or are higher, are, are prohibitive. So what it forces, what happens is a lot of times it, uh, because of the duties on importing goods, we push manufacturing out of the country. And so uh, the foreign trade zone was created to bring manufacturing back to the United States and provides a um, So you pay a tax on the uh, import of the goods and then you pay a tax when you sell the finished product. So what the Foreign Trade Zone does does, is it allows you to pick whichever is the lower tax and just pay that tax.
0: Okay. And that would apply to businesses within um, how many miles, say, of the Grand Junction Airport?
4: So a foreign trade zone has to be attached to the customs office, which will be established at the airport. And then it's it's a strange it's strange the way it's written. It's 60 miles or 90 minutes driving time, okay. which, of course, in Colorado is very different depending which direction you're going. Cool. Um, so it, it actually has a pretty good reach out here. It would go all the way to almost to Glenwood Springs, uh, Rifle, to Beck, Um uh, Grand Junction, Palisade, and Fruta, And then it heads down uh, Highway 50 to. and includes Montrose and Delta as well.
0: What kinds of businesses would benefit from this? Are there specific ones clamoring as we speak?
4: So manufacturers. And of course, that that... Span so many industries, you know, here in in Western Colorado, we've tried very hard to diversify our economy in the last eight years. You know, we've watched the rest of the state boom. And we're still dragging through this recession from the loss of natural gas and and, both the energy industry. So in an effort to do that, we've reached out to the outdoor recreation industry as a place, you know, we we want to be attractive to that industry. And it's worked. We have a quite a, I think, a robust outdoor rec industry. Um, and we have a lot of outdoor gear manufacturers. We also have some electronics companies. We have, it's a wide variety of Um, different types of companies that are manufacturing goods here in Grand Junction that could benefit from a foreign trade zone. You know, we have Leitner Poma is a good example. They uh, make um, ski lifts, people movers, um, gondolas all over the world. And so they manufacture um, ski chairs here in Grand Junction. So they import a raw material and then manufacture it into a chair and sell it. Uh, They could benefit from a foreign trade zone. We have mountain racing products. They make uh, mountain biking components. Same with DT Swiss. Um, And then beyond the outdoor industry, we have a company here called Superbird. They are the largest uh, manufacturer of bird toys, um, I think, in the United States. And again, this kind of small little company that imports raw materials, turns them into bird toys, and then sells them all over the world. Wait,
0: a bird toy? What do you mean a bird toy? Yep. Like
4: bird toys, toys for birds,
0: toys for birds that you have in cages, in cages okay. to
4: keep them to keep them occupied. I like how even so Again, during, it's even during our yes.
0: interview, Robin Brown, your phone is going off. That's how busy you are. I think I heard. Oh, you,
4: is it? I don't hear it. Oh, okay.
0: Uh, uh, oh. So let let me ask you this: What would it take to get uh, a customs office at the airport?
4: So we have to make the business case that we can support it, uh, and and we have to pay for it. So first is the actual construction of the Customs Office, um, and we've allotted $1 million to do that. And that's paid for by uh, the municipalities that are partnering with us to do this. Um, So the county, Grand Junction, FRUTA. Uh, we hope our partners in um, Delta, Montrose, and Rifle they've they've expressed an interest as well. So we've earmarked the money for the construction, and then you have to support the customs officer that will be assigned to that office, and that's about a two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year expense. That again, the um, stakeholders and the the municipalities who have said that that this is something we want to have have all chipped in to. and committed to um, supporting for the next couple of years.
0: Is this going to be hard to pull off or are these easy to create?
4: Well, they're not easy to create. Um, what we have in our favor is we have um, the support of the local community. So oh. we have the support of all of our partners. Um, at the In the municipalities, we have the support of the Chamber of Commerce. They've been a huge driver of this. They actually wrote the business plan for it. Um, so all the all the different economic development groups are hugely in support of this because it doesn't just benefit the businesses that already exist here, but it's a great attractor to new business. And as we try desperately to diversify the economy over here, we would really like to um, increase our manufacturing. And so it becomes, as we recruit new businesses into the community, having a foreign trade zone is very um, appealing and could help us, you know, make the difference between whether they come to us or another community.
0: Have you heard that from companies who've at least considered Grand Junction? Like, sorry, we 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 can't make it unless you are a foreign trade zone.
4: That, yes. We've heard that a number of times.
0: So what's the timeline here?
4: So it's a long process. You know, you have to go through the government. So um, there's an application process. We have to prove that the, the business plan is viable. We have to have find the space at the airport, which we have found. Um, so we've lo- we've identified where we'll build it. Uh, and then we, you know, there's architectural drawings that have to be done. Um, and so I'm hoping by the end of the year, we will be approved and begin construction on the um, location.
0: So you might have a customs officer, but no international flights. That's a possibility.
4: Well, so that's, we don't have international, we don't have commercial flights, but we have Westar Aviation at our airport and they do um, aircraft maintenance, avionics, all kinds of refurbishment on a lot of different types of aircraft. And so they actually service, we talked to them, they service at, on average, eight international flights um, a a month come in to get service done, but they have to clear through another airport. So the, having the customs office would mean those aircraft could come directly in to Grand Junction and then get their maintenance done at Westar West and then leave, as opposed to having to clear through Gypsum, because they have a customs, and then come to Grand Junction. So we would have international flights. Initially, they would be private.
0: Gypsum has uh, a customs uh,
4: They office. do. So Eagle Airport. It's Eagle Airport, and Got it's it. for the international ski traffic.
0: Makes sense. Well, Robin, thanks so mm-hmm. much for being with us and explaining this to us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: She is Robin Brown, the new executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, joining us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction to talk about the possibility of creating a foreign trade zone there. Now, virtual reality opera. In an exhibition at the Denver Performing Arts Complex, you can put on a VR headset and suddenly be in an Opera Colorado chorus rehearsal as they prepare for Puccini's La Boheme about young artists falling in love in Paris.
2: The big thing that we love about virtual reality is that it gives you the ability to go to places that aren't practical or possible.
0: That is Mark Anton Reed, his VR company Hypercube, partnered with Opera Colorado and CU Denver to create Experience La Boheme. It also transports you on stage for the third act of the opera, standing outside a tavern as snow falls. More than 50 CU students worked on this project. Associate Professor Michelle Carpenter says virtual reality can't replace a live performance, but it can make opera more accessible.
5: If you can bring this to a gallery, to a school, to the foyer of the opera, to different locations, and let people have a glimpse of what happens at a live performance, I think that's an incredible
4: thing to be able to do.
0: Carpenter says VR experiences of ballet and theater could be next. The exhibition Experience La Boheme is up through May at the Next Stage Gallery in Denver. Metro Denver has a lot of competition in its bid to land Amazon's second headquarters. All told, 238 places are vying for HQ2. The company expects to announce the winner sometime this year. The reason so many communities want Amazon? The jobs. But are they really that good? That's the focus of the latest episode of Primed from our colleagues at KUOW Public Radio in Seattle, where Amazon started. Let's turn it over to hosts Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph.
5: Hey, Siri, tell us a joke. I can't. I always forget the punchline. Ah, come on, Apple. Nobody working in your AI department has a sense of humor. Hey, Alexa, tell me a joke. Parallel lines have so much in common. It's a shame they'll never meet. (laughs) That's pretty good, actually.
2: Okay, Carolyn, why are you asking Alexa for jokes?
5: Well, someone asked a programmer to tell jokes, which means there's a job for that.
2: You're right. Actually, pretty much anything you ask Alexa to do, there's been some person behind the scenes. Cedar Burnett realized that one night when she asked Alexa to sing her a song.
6: Who, me? I couldn't. And she,
4: I'm saying she for Alexa, she busted out with this crazy, pun-heavy... Like, Hit it. Country song. Well, my
6: wifi left me, and I'm out in the rain, those last few answers were hard to obtain. And it was absolutely hilarious. And no I just thought to myself, to somebody wrote you. this, like a and
0: job, what a cool job.
2: And I would just, I was like, how do I get that job? I'm Joshua McNichols.
5: I'm Carolyn Adolph from KUOW in Seattle. This is Primed. What happens when Amazon comes to your town? This episode, we're looking at the jobs at Amazon's headquarters here in Seattle. Potential HQ2 cities want to know.
2: Hey, Alexa, what's it like to work at Amazon?
5: Sorry, I don't know that.
2: We just love it. I basically
4: consistently work 10 hour days.
5: They really need to think about who's not at the table. Sarah Holder writes for CityLab. She says Chicago's bid really stood out. It seems like Chicago could offer up to 50 percent of the income taxes incurred by Amazon employees back to Amazon itself. (laughs) Wow. That would mean Amazon workers would be paying taxes to their boss. Then there's New Jersey. New Jersey is offering $5 billion, and Newark is offering another $2 billion on top of that. So all in all, Newark is offering Amazon $7 billion. Cities are really stretching themselves to try and land this thing. They want to be Amazon's next company town. And one big reason they're doing it is for the jobs, 50,000 of them.
2: Here's the thing you have to understand about Amazon. These are not traditional jobs. In fact, a lot of the jobs that are coming to HQ2 can't even be predicted now. And if people are doing their jobs right, they'll disappear. Poof. So what are these jobs? That's coming up next.
5: Here's something that's very public. It's right on Amazon.com's job board. Amazon is hunting for 3,500 people in Seattle right now. A lot of them are for software-related jobs.
2: They need more than 400 new people just to work on Alexa. Wow.
5: Many of these jobs pay over $100,000. Yeah, plus stock. These are the kinds of jobs that make parents heave a sigh of relief. We heard that when we attended Take Your Parents to Work Day at Amazon. Take Your Parents to Work yeah, it's one of the rare days when Amazon lets reporters inside their headquarters. It's a big social event. Anakit Devecha's mother came a long way for this visit. I'm Aparna, visiting from, from India. India
3: Bombay.
5: And I'm, of course I'm proud of my baby doing so good. So I'm so proud of him, feeling very happy. So were Valerie Scott and her husband Steve, who were visiting their son Tom.
6: The technology is just
4: blowing us away. We just love it. What great opportunities for anyone who works for this company.
5: Both Tom and Anniket hold highly paid, permanent jobs at Amazon.
2: But not all the jobs are permanent, or for people with coding backgrounds. Some are gig jobs. Like, you can be a fashion specialist for Alexa. Amazon wants Alexa to be able to help people choose
5: outfits. What, you mean like, say yes to the dress? (laughs) <laughs> it's this one! Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Someone gets
6: Randy!
2: I'm not that familiar with that show, but I guess. <laughs> anyway, you can send Alexa pictures through an Amazon device and ask, which outfit looks better on me? At Amazon's headquarters, real live humans render a judgment.
5: What? You mean all the time?
2: Yeah, they do. Meg Whittakin used to work the overnight shift as a fashion advisor for Alexa.
4: Yeah, I think some people couldn't believe that there'd be people at, you know, there at midnight taking a look at the picture that they're sending in. (laughs) But there I was.
2: (laughs) Wittekin judged people's outfits so that Alexa could learn how to judge people's outfits. She was teaching Alexa to do her job. That's how machines learn. It's part of artificial intelligence. It's part of the drive to make Alexa indispensable in people's lives. Amazon is very serious about this. But when Wittekind worked there, sometimes customers made a joke out of it.
6: Yeah, just wearing things backwards or upside down.
2: Or they dress up in ridiculous costumes and ask, how do I look?
6: Uh, We got a few naked photos, so, you know, that's always. (laughs) Because I think they
4: were really trying to figure out if there is a human element or if it is just machines. So there would be a lot of people kind of trying to trick it.
2: Eventually, Alexa should be able to do more of this work on her own, which brings up something important about Amazon Jobs. The whole philosophy here is to eliminate work so that people can be freed up to do other things, whether you want to be freed up or not. Whittakin's job was not a permanent position. It was two six-month gigs. Amazon won't say just how many jobs at HQ1 are contract work.
5: We do know that many of the lower paid jobs at Amazon are contract. Greg Ramirez with the SEIU is trying to unionize Amazon security guards, which he calls officers.
3: A good majority of those officers have been there five years. They haven't seen a wage increase.
5: He says the work is unpredictable and there are no benefits.
3: Their hours fluctuate from, you know, maybe one week being 45, 50 hours to another week being 20. And so when they look back, they don't meet the threshold to be required to have medical insurance.
5: Amazon referred our questions about this to their security contractor, which disputes that description.
2: You know, but these kinds of complaints are certainly not unique to Amazon. People in lots of industries deal with unpredictable hours and don't get benefits.
5: Yeah, but Amazon relies on contract work a lot. It's part of Amazon's DNA to hire people only when they are needed. Coming up next, what does it take to get a permanent job at Amazon? We tried to get one, kind of. So we've heard about some of the jobs coming to HQ two, and they're not all programming jobs. But no matter what the job is, Amazon has a high bar. They want to make sure people they hire are the best.
2: Alexa, how do I get a job at Amazon?
5: Sorry. I don't know that one. A lot of people don't know. It's really tough to get in. The interview weeds a lot of people out. People try to help each other by posting the questions that they get asked on the Internet.
2: Okay, so I'm looking this up on my smartphone. One of the interview questions is, which Amazon leadership principle do you resonate most with?
5: Yes, the 14 Leadership Principles at Amazon. Customer obsession. Invent and simplify. Earn track. Learn have and be curious. Insist on the highest By standards. for action. Think big. you got to be able to name them and you got to express them.
2: Here's another interview prompt. Design an online payment system?
5: <laughs> yes, right in front of the interviewer. And you can't just pull something out of the air. You have to use math.
0: Amazon definitely does look for people who are data-driven.
5: Todd Johnson is a recruiter, and he worked for a while at Amazon. He put me to the test.
0: If I was recruiting a recruiter, right, it would be, if you need to hire 60 people, what do you do?
5: What time frame do you need the 60 people? Three months. That's 20 a month, five a week.
0: So then you have to ask a question. Let's say you have 10 interviews. What percentage of the people who do on-site interviews get offered a job?
1: That's that's
0: the question. So that was your
5: next question. I think I flunked the interview. Amazon won't tell us what percentage actually succeed. Todd Johnson, who recruited software engineers at Amazon, said very few get offers.
2: It's less than 1%. So we've established it's tough to get in. That actually opens up a very big issue. So let's talk about it for a minute. Who does succeed in getting a job at Amazon? It's an important question because the tech industry as a whole lacks diversity. That's actually a
0: fair thing to say about the industry. Uh, It's about 80% white men. That's a national average.
2: That's Michael Schutzler, who runs the Washington Technology Industry Association. Amazon does provide demographic information about its workforce. It shows 2 thirds of US managers are white. The numbers include both headquarters and warehouse jobs all lumped together.
5: So we can't tease out who gets the very best headquarters jobs. Ruchika
2: Tulsian is a journalist and author of The Diversity Advantage. We went down to Amazon's headquarters and sat on a bench near the entrance. Who do you see walking in and out of this building?
1: Currently, I've seen a group of about, I'd say,
4: six, all men. Almost everyone in the group is white and probably around the age of 30. So thirties, male, white. I see uh, an African-American man wiping down the surfaces around the Amazon building.
2: We do see some diversity. Tolshin points out some men of apparent Southeast Asian descent. But she says, don't be fooled by the diversity you see on the ground. Amazon's top executives are overwhelmingly white.
1: When it comes to those big fat stock options and those big salaries, you know, it goes to white employees.
2: Michael Schützler says Amazon is working hard to try to diversify, and he says they deserve praise for that. At least they're making progress.
5: Inside Amazon, there are groups that support African-American, Latino, and female talent. Mark Hatcher represents BEN, the Black Employee Network.
1: It's an emerging group with a lot of big issues uh, that we try to tackle.
5: His estimate is is around 4% of workers at Amazon's HQ are African-American.
1: We're working on programs now to kind of drive that recruitment, as well as retain the employees that we have.
2: So we've been talking about what the jobs are and how difficult it is to get in.
5: But just getting in the door doesn't mean your life is easy from now on. Coming up next, what it's like to work at Amazon and why people leave. So you got the job at Amazon, ran the gauntlet, signed the contract. Congratulations! Now what? You may have heard about that famous New York Times article about how work is so demanding at Amazon that people sometimes cry at their desks.
2: Tomáš Shingler never saw people crying when he worked at Amazon. In fact, he loved his time there. But he said thriving at Amazon requires you to embrace impermanence. I mean, the highest achievement that you can you can have is to manage yourself out of a job. If you can eliminate your job, you can move on to something else at the company. And that's one way Amazon succeeds in getting so much more out of its workers. Shingler says at Amazon, he became a better communicator and a more critical thinker. But yes, there's pressure. But what's so joyful about it is that all of the people who are there and who experience that pressure, they are sharpened by it. And so it's just pure joy often interacting with these people. Of course, you know, uh, sharpening means there's a grindstone involved. but (laughs) And that grindstone means long hours. Shingler worked 10-hour days. Amazon is a great thing to have done. It's a party, but try partying five years straight, right? You get tired, Shingler eventually left his Amazon job and went to Microsoft. It's a story we heard again and again. Alex Rossi loved the grind at Amazon. He says it reflected values he'd inherited from his hard-working Chinese immigrant parents. But eventually he started to ask some hard questions. I realized that I might be missing out on other parts of life. Rossi had money saved up, so he took a year off work to travel and spend more time with his family. And he came to a realization. There's more to adulthood than work. That's something that I discovered during that one year off. Rossi eventually ended up at Microsoft.
5: Microsoft is beginning to sound like a retirement center for exhausted Amazonians.
2: (laughs) I know. But, I mean, Microsoft can be intense, too. And some teams do work 10-hour days. But Shingler says he has less of a sense of obligation to work long hours at Microsoft. And Rossi says his pace at Microsoft has become more sustainable than it was at Amazon. I think there's a balance, and and achieving that balance is uh, is the responsibility of the employer.
5: The responsibility of the employer? What does Jeff Bezos have to say about this?
0: My view
3: is I don't even like the phrase work-life balance. I think it's misleading.
2: I like the phrase work-life harmony. There may be crunch periods where it's about the number of hours in the week, but that that's not the real thing. Usually it's about, do you have
1: energy? Is your work depriving you of energy, or is your work generating energy for you?
5: If you work at Amazon, we'd love to hear how you'd answer that question. Reach out to us on Facebook.
2: Amazon sent us comments from a highly satisfied Amazon employee And I'll read from her statement. It says, life is about the choices and trade-offs you make and feeling at peace with those choices. I am very motivated to do meaningful work and also very protective of the personal time I have with my young kids and husband.
5: So she's saying work-life harmony is possible. You can have it all. But I've got to say the churn and burn environment at Amazon is well known here in Seattle.
2: Yeah, you go anywhere. Soccer games, birthday parties, and there's always somebody talking about it.
5: Let me tell you about this guy I met. He keeps interviewing at Amazon. Every time I'm interviewed for Amazon, they they turn me down. This is Samir Arshad. He's a software engineer. Amazon is just not that into him. And they say, oh, you're not a culture fit. Sorry. But he's not sure he's into Amazon either.
2: Give us your evenings and weekends sometimes. Work uh, on call
5: once every five weeks. Give us your life. Arshad has lots of chances to reconsider because Amazon keeps calling, scheduling him for interviews even though they say he's a bad fit. I'm okay with this. I'm happy to come in
2: and interview in another part of the company and learn more about this company. And I just probe accordingly.
0: The latest episode of Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town. It comes from our colleagues at KUOW in Seattle with hosts Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph. You can find all the episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation continues at the Primed Facebook page. Metro Denver will learn whether it has landed HQ2 sometime this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A car crash in college left Reagan Linton paralyzed from the chest down. But that didn't stop her from pursuing an acting career. Today, Linton is artistic director of Colorado's Family Theater Company. It showcases actors with disabilities. Linton was recently named Colorado Theater Person of the Year. She's credited with saving family from bankruptcy. CPR's Nathan Heffel spoke with her in 2016. I
3: understand you began acting in middle school. But you were also really into athletics at that time.
6: Yes. But in fact, more so into athletics than I was into theater. I was—I played soccer and softball and <laughs> skied growing up in Colorado. Um, and theater was always kind of like a side thing that I i, I did, uh, you know, in my bathroom um, <laughs> in the morning, <laughs> like having interviews with uh, in the mirror. Late, yeah, late night talk show hosts in the mirror. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I did it a, a little bit. And then when I got into high school is when I kind of plunged into it. More thoroughly.
3: Why? Why did you take that route as opposed to athletics?
6: Well, I loved both, but actually, to be honest, it came to a point where the seasons conflicted. The soccer season conflicted with the musical theater season, and um, I'd been playing soccer my whole life, and I was like, okay, I'm going to give something else a go, so I want to get on stage and belt out a song. That sounds fun. And it took. It position. did. It did somehow. Yeah, I didn't fall off the stage <laughs> <laughs> at least that time. Um <laughs> no, it uh I think it was something that I always had a passion for, but you know, growing up I I had a lot of uh, different influences that made me think, like, oh, I, I shouldn't take that route because it's not legitimate, quote-unquote, in some way. Um, you know, I should be a doctor. I should be a, a lawyer. I should be, you know, this or that. And um, eventually I just couldn't deny it after, after a certain amount of time.
3: You have a spinal cord injury uh, from a car crash when you were an undergraduate at the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. What were those early days like for you after the
6: accident? Ooh, rough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I actually... I kind of roller coastered between really high points where i was I would lie in my bed and I would think, you know this isn 't so bad, like I can do this what what 's not walking you know using a wheelchair, no big deal, and then there were other times where i 'd be lying there and i I remember telling my mom at some point I should have just died because it would have been easier because I was going to be you know a burden to myself and my family and uh and i didn 't know how it was I was going to make it work so there were a lot of emotions. And I think I, to a large extent, just kind of went back into a shell and, um, you know, put up an armor and, and didn't, didn't want to engage with it. So it was rough. It was a hard time.
3: So, how did acting then help with that, or did it help with recovery?
6: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like acting kind of came along as that uh, savior in a sense where, I mean, it, not immediately. I was terrified of it because I, again, I think there of was. Of acting? This, of acting, yeah, and of getting back on stage again because I had a certain image from growing up of what that would look like. You know, I didn't see actors using wheelchairs on stage. And so, to some extent, it was like, how do I do that? Well Now, with two thirds of my body paralyzed, um, how do I? I do a tap dance? How do I uh, represent a character fully? And so it took a while for me to discover my instrument, my physical instrument in a new way and realize, oh, this is totally possible. It's just going to look different from what I what it used to.
3: But I understand that while you were in Los Angeles, uh, it was hard for directors to see past your wheelchair.
6: Absolutely. You know, um, the entertainment industry is a is a tough industry for anybody. And one of the reasons is that, you know, often you're looking at something very specific when casting directors get a casting breakdown. um, You know, it has age, it has race, it has uh, gender, it has, you know, specific descriptions of what this person should look like. Hmm. And so if you don't have somebody that's written a disability or a wheelchair into that, then often casting directors are moving at such a quick pace that they don't even have the time to think outside of the box and think, oh, well, a wheelchair, a person in a wheelchair could play this role. Um, you know they 're just looking at getting it done, so it 's hard and there, and there are not a lot of roles written for people with disabilities, and often when they are then they 're played by people who don 't have disabilities so uh, it was It was definitely a challenge in that environment
3: as we mentioned you 've performed a number of family shows, uh, and you won a best of Denver award from Westward
6: I did. for your Ooh. performance of
3: Eldanza <laughs> in family 's production of Manila Mancha yes, how and when were you first exposed to family?
6: I was – well, the funny thing is I was I, – I, when I was a kid, I would look in like the Denver Post at the auditions. They used to list auditions and I would see family, but it said that you had to have a disability to audition. And I was like, oh, darn, I can't do that, you know, because I didn't, I didn't have a disability at that point. Um, so I kind of was aware of, of family and then uh, after my injury, I came back and was fortunate enough to go to Craig Hospital in Englewood to do my rehab. And while I was there, I had some people, family friends that said, oh, you know, you're – we know you're a performer. You should look at this group. Mm. And um, so I started volunteering initially because, I again, I was too I, – I wasn't at the point where I was ready to audition yet. And um, finally it, it got to a point where I was like I just can't – I can't not do this and see what happens with it.
3: Was it because you were afraid or you just didn't feel
6: – I think it was fear. Again, it was just that thing of like – I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what this is going to be. And there were also a lot of messages out there that I bought into about disability and about what that was going to mean for my life, about what a wheelchair would mean for my life. And, you know, many of them are not positive, uh, but they're also inaccurate. <laughs> so it just took me a while to kind of get past that and, and um, take the plunge and then realize, oh, I can make my wheelchair or my body or myself into anything that I want it to be.
3: What kinds of productions would you like to bring uh, to, to this? Ooh, to this
6: that is the big question, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, I think one of the one of the lovely things about family is that we have. Actors that cannot help but be authentic and honest in what they do. Um, obviously, they're still actors. They're playing other, you know, they're they're channeling other characters. Um, but it's a different experience when you see somebody get on stage and use something in a vulnerable and authentic way. Um, so I... I hope we can just continue that tradition of, you know, doing the big main stage shows and musicals and plays that we've always done, but bringing a level of authenticity to it. And I think there are also, there's some areas of subject matter that I think family hasn't tackled um, in terms of like sexuality and relationships mm-hmm. and what it is to be a person with a disability and have the same desires and wants and needs as any other person. So I think we're going to venture into that into that realm as well as some theatrical genres that we've never tried, such as Shakespeare. Shakespeare or, you know, hopefully in the future something like Chekhov or you know, some of the some of the things that are characteristic to theater work um, and challenging theater work that we as a company just haven't had the opportunity to do yet.
3: Now, are, are there works that do show uh, people with disabilities falling in love, or is that something that you would have to write or bring to the stage yourself?
6: I think there are some out there already. You know, my, my opinion is also we can do a traditional play about love. It doesn't have to be written with disability in it. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can do Romeo and Juliet. We can do, um, you know, whatever your favorite play is, that is about love and just have it cast with people with disabilities. So, uh so we'll be looking at that too. And but we do also, you know, one of the things that many of our actors are passionate about is doing original work and writing pieces that come from a perspective or through a lens of disability mm-hmm. and we'll be continuing that as well.
3: Thanks so much for being here.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Regan Linton leads the Family Theater Company, which features performers with disabilities. She spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel in 2016. Linton was just named Colorado Theater Person of the Year. By the way, Romeo and Juliet is part of Family's 2018 season, which also includes the musical Into the Woods and the Pulitzer Prize-winning play Harvey. Finally today, someone whose childhood dream of making movies took him from the Mile High City to a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars The Last Jedi is storming the box office, currently the 18th highest grossing movie in history. Its writer and director, Ryan Johnson, grew up in Denver. And you might say the force was strong with him back then.
2: Yeah, well, in Denver is when I was in grade school. So that, you know, I saw Return of the Jedi at the Continental when it came out. And I like, you know, that was those were the backyards in Denver that I was playing with the toys and making Star Wars movies in my head for the first time, like like a lot of kids do. Speaking there with
0: Fox 31, some of the scenery in The Last Jedi may look familiar to Coloradans, with mountains on the horizon and sheer rock faces that spring from plains-like terrain. Landscapes that, no doubt, transport Ryan Johnson to the Front Range, at a time when he first felt that spark of movie magic. That's our show for today. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters and follow me at CPR Warner on Facebook or CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, Colorado Public Radio.